0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we thank you for your love for us, your people, which has been since before the foundation of the world. We thank you that you have set your love on us, that you've always had kind thoughts toward us, a desire to redeem us, We thank you for the gift of your most treasured son, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you would even come into this world that's all messed up, that we have messed up, and that you would endure all the hardships and temptations that our sin has produced in this world. We especially thank you for offering your own infinitely valuable life, your body for us on that dreaded Friday. We thank you for offering your liberty, to the captors, your back to the whips, your head to their thorns, your divinity and beauty to their insults, your wrists and your ankles to their nails, your side to their spear, your life to their cross. And we know that it's because of the cross, because of your death for us, your bloodshed, that we can come into this place and now be welcomed in your presence to be welcomed into your happy and holy presence as your sons and daughters, and we thank you immensely for that. Holy Spirit, we owe you our lives for opening our eyes to the beauty of this Savior. We thank you for living in us, for stirring in us affections for Jesus. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would give us new eyes for Jesus this morning, that you would give us new ears for his call, that you would give us new taste buds on our souls to delight in Jesus this morning. We pray that you would feed us with your holy presence through the word and through the table. We love you, Lord. We pray that you would assist me to proclaim your excellencies this morning. We pray that you would make us the holiest and happiest people we can possibly be in this life. We pray that you would command whatever you want from us and that you would give us the ability to do what you command. And all God's people say, Amen. So this morning we're continuing in a, a doctrine series, and the first few weeks we've actually been looking at the, um, the attributes of God, and so this is the third one, and then we're going to move on to some other topics of that series, but we've got these cards that Lee made for us, a clearer vision of the Almighty. See how it's blurry? Isn't that cool? And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at biblical doctrine this summer, a bunch of different doctrines, a bunch of different truths he's given us, because we want to have our spiritual eyes checked. We want to see God with the the most clarity we possibly can so that we can enjoy him and we can live for him and we can live holy before him. And so that's important that we would see him rightly. And you're going to see that this morning because we're going to talk about the glory of God. So we're going to be looking at the glory of God this morning, not literally, um, but we're going to be looking at the glory of God this morning. And there's two passages that... That you're gonna, we're going to be in. Isaiah 6, so you want to find that, kind of bookmark that, put your finger in there. And then the passage that Elisa read there in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. And so this morning we're talking about the glory of God. It's, some, it's a word we all throw around. It's a word that I think if I asked you to right now define what the glory of God is, many would have a very hard time doing it. And that's reasonable. It's kind of notoriously hard to pin down exactly what the glory of God means. The best explanation that I've ever seen is that the glory of God is God's holiness on display. Okay? We can't see his true holy essence, but we can see it being displayed in all of his perfections in the world. And I get that from Isaiah 6, 1. Take a look at it. This is a vision that, that Isaiah had where he saw the Lord. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory." And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, behold, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. What I want you to notice is in verse 3 where he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, so you can see the two things there. God is holy and his glory is his holiness put on display. His glory is his holiness that we can actually see, not his holy essence that we can't see. Similar to the sun, You know, we don't actually see the sun. What's actually coming into our eyes are the rays from the sun. God's holy essence is unseen to us, but He sheds forth His glory into the world in a way that we can perceive. So the rays are like the glory from His His holy essence. God's glory is His seen and known and hopefully enjoyed holiness put on display in the world. Isn't that awesome? And we don't, we don't get to see his essence, but we do see his glory. We do taste some of who he is. And remember from last week that God is holy, meaning that God is uniquely different from all of us, everyone in creation, all of creation. So that when we use words like love and mercy and justice to describe God, we have to remember that his love and mercy and justice are completely unique to anything we've experienced, right? That there's communicable attributes there's some ways in which we're like him but we ought never to think that what we know of love is what God is because he is holy he is unique we only very weakly reflect him all of God's attributes are holy attributes all of God's attributes are unique versions of those things for example God's love is a holy love meaning it's a unique love God isn't just nice to a few people who have been nice to him that's our kind of love right God doesn't love others for what he can get from them God has eternally given himself to others from a deep well of love from within himself. So It isn't a responsive love like, oh, wow, you're lovely. I'm going to love you like we do. God's love wells up from within himself. God's knowledge is a holy knowledge. His knowledge is different than us. It's unique from us. God doesn't just know a lot of stuff like many of you do, right? God's knowledge is unique. He's omniscient, meaning that God knows all things actual and possible in one simple divine act. You guys saw, you know, when Dr. Strange was thinking through all the different contingencies that could happen, you know, if, uh, if the, the uh, what is it, infinity stones were all captured. Well, the different, I look to these guys, are the experts. And, and he does this thing where he's like thinking through all the different possibilities, you know, and it takes him a few minutes, and then he goes, okay, there's this one way we can win. God's not like that. In one simple act, he understands all that will happen, all that could happen, all the contingencies, his knowledge is exhaustive. And there's been an attack on this in recent days with this thing called open theism, this idea that, you know, God doesn't really know the future. He has a pretty good idea what will happen because he's really smart. But, you know, if we're going to have free will, then obviously, you know, God can't know the future. God would impinge on our free will. And it's all this attempt to kind of get God off the hook for the suffering in the world. Guys, God never asked us to get him off the hook. He never said, go, therefore, into all the world and apologize for me. Okay, go there into all the world and, you know, get me off the hook for the things that people are blaming me for. No, God says go into all the world and proclaim the gospel and tell them exactly who I, who I am. And who he is, is he is omniscient. He knows all things actual and possible in one simple divine act. Isaiah 46.9 says this, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things have not happened yet. God's power is a holy power. God's power is unique. He isn't just really strong. He's omnipotent, meaning that God is able to do anything that's a feat of power without ever taxing his strength, right? So Luke uh, 1.37 says, For nothing will be impossible with God. People say, well, you know, if God's so, strong, God's so um, powerful, he can do anything, can he make a rock so big he can't pick up? Well, that's actually not a feat of strength, okay? That's an impossibility. It's, it's not you know, it's a logical impossibility. God can do anything that's a feat of power and he can do it without ever taxing his strength, never tired, never worn out. God, God's will is a holy will. God's will is a holy will in that he isn't just someone who kind of gets his to-do list done most of the time. God is, God is sovereign, meaning that he rules over the entire universe as king and his will is the ultimate reason that everything happens. Okay, let me say that again. God rules over the universe as king, and his will is the ultimate reason that everything happens. Okay, His will is a holy will. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will. And then listen to this, Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is sovereign over everything in the universe and is working all of it to his desired ends. He's got a holy will. God's freedom is a holy freedom. God doesn't just get to do what he wants most of the time or some of the time. God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants. God is utterly free. God is utterly free. He's utterly sovereign. And actually, you know what? There's no one else in the universe that is right? There can only be one sovereign. There can only be one being that's absolutely free, and it's God. Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. He's never had something where he goes, you know, I'd kind of like to do that, but, you know, they don't want to get on board, right? God accomplishes all of his holy will. God's happiness is a holy happiness. God isn't just, like, kind of stoked, okay? God is the happiest of all beings, we call that his blessedness. In uh, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 15, it says, He who is blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords. God is blessed, meaning he's the happiest of all beings. God dwells in absolute joy, okay? So Psalm sixteen, eleven says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is the happiest of all beings. I don't know if you think of him that way, but he is the happiest of all beings. It says in Hebrews 1, 9 of Jesus, God says, the Father says to Jesus this, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. So Jesus, ascended, raised, ascended, reigning, is the happiest of all beings. He has been anointed, not with one of your oils, you know, one of your, you know, medicinal oils. He has been anointed with the oil of gladness above all of his companions, Jesus is right now the happiest man that has ever existed. God is blessed. He has a holy happiness. He's the happiest of all beings. God is beautiful, and his beauty is a holy beauty, meaning that God's beauty is the fact that he is the sum of all desirable attributes. Okay, That's what we mean by beauty, is that he has everything he could possibly be and have to be as beautiful as he could possibly be. Um, Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I may seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. God is beautiful in that he is the sum of all desirable qualities. He's also perfect because he lacks no quality that would make him better. See how those are related. He has everything. And so when we think of God's holiness and his beauty and his perfections, when they're actually seen in the world, that's called glory. The bit that we can understand and see of that, that's his glory. His unseen holy essence being shot out into the world as rays from a sun is his glory. So Isaiah 6:3 says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of his glory. And God's glory and perfections are what we see in the world. And we see him in a couple of ways. We see him in creation. I think, you know, for those of us that are really minded to be outdoorsy and, and look at it around us and not be indoors all the time, we can see his glory in creation. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it pours forth speech, and night to night, it reveals knowledge. That somehow the creation is constantly speaking of the glory of God. Um, our universe, guys, is thought to be—it's never been measured— It's been thought to be 93 billion light years across. So if you're traveling at the speed of light, you start from one end to the other, it would take you 93 billion years to make that trip. Although the universe is also thought to be rapidly expanding, so you probably don't get there, you know, like it's just continually growing. 93 billion years at the speed of light. Our sun is actually one of about a billion trillion stars in the known universe. They estimate that we have probably 10 billion galaxies. So our galaxy is the Milky Way galaxy. And not talking about solar system, but our solar system is in a galaxy, which is in the universe, right? And so there's 10 billion, roughly, galaxies. And each one of those galaxies has about 100 billion stars in it, right? So that's where you get the number if you do the math, which I didn't, a billion trillion stars. And it's crazy the immensity of this, because if you think about our sun, if you were to, like, take our sun... And think of our sun the size of a golf ball. The next star would be in Oregon. That's how immense the universe is. So by scale of our sun, which we're like a grain of sand compared to the sun. And so if you were to shrink it down to a golf ball and go like, how far away is the next star? It's the next one, the closest one, Oregon. Is that crazy? This is insane. It's immense. Our sun is small compared to the biggest one. The biggest one we know of is Canis Major, which means like big dog, you know, and it is the big dog because it's 2,600 times bigger than our sun. Give you an idea. If you got in a passenger jet and you were cruising along the surface of it, which you couldn't do because you'd burn up, but let's just say you got in a jet, you're you're traveling at normal, you know, United Airlines speed around Canis Major, okay, at that speed, it would take you 1,100 years to go all the way around it. It's that big. So, this is, so the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Right? Like Psalm 19 says, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Constantly speaking of his glory. But you know what? God actually made human beings to glorify him more than that. He actually made human beings in his image to where our lives are designed to speak of his glory more than that. It's crazy. Take a look at, I mean, Isaiah 43 says this. Bring, 43 6, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I've created for what? For my glory, whom I've formed and made. You were created to glorify God. You were created to join creation, actually lead creation in declaring the beauty and the glory and the worth of God. We were all created to put our little spotlights onto his great light, showing his glory. Guys, one thing you got to realize about the God of the Bible, and I think this sometimes rubs people the wrong way, is that God does everything he does for his own glory, okay? God does everything he does to spotlight himself. Everything God does is to say, look at me, okay? And that might rub you the wrong way. Everything that he does in creation, in providence, in redemption, his work through the church is all to put a big spotlight on himself. But you know what? Spotlighting his own glory is the only right and loving thing to do for God. It's the only right and loving thing God could do. And I'll give you an example of this. Imagine there's a huge desert, and, and there's no water anywhere. And in the middle of this desert, there's a fountain. And this fountain is, is, is overflowing with plenty of water for all the residents of the desert. And imagine there's no other source of water. What would be the most loving thing to do? The most loving thing to do would be to put big signs over this thing, right? We don't want anybody to miss. Like, this is the only fountain in the desert. This is the only way to life. This is the only way to joy. Come to this fountain. The only right thing to do would be at night, have bright lights on it, and during the day, have big signs on it and to point to it. Well, I'll tell you what, guys. Guys. This whole world is a desert and God is the only fountain of living water. He is the only source of life and happiness. It's only right and loving for him to constantly point to himself and say, come to me right? If you were to point to other things and go, oh, no, no, you know what, that vacation's a little better than I am, or, oh, your spouse, your spouse is actually, you know, we're kind of neck and neck on how good we are for you. Like, if he did stuff like that, he wouldn't be loving. It'd be like pointing you to go drink from some, you know, poisonous water in the desert somewhere, right? Or to drink salt water, right? But he says, come to me. He does everything he does for his own glory, and that's the most right and loving thing for him to do. Take a look at Second Corinthians 3.12. God saved us, guys, by showing us his glory. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was coming to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Spirit, from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this mystery by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. And we've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning and to tamper with God's word. But by open declarations of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Christ Jesus is Lord, and we ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul's drawing on something here that happened to Moses in Exodus. So Moses had this amazing opportunity to meet with God regularly and to see his glory. And when he would do this, kind of awkward, he would come out and his face would glow. Apparently, like, actually luminescent, you know, so when he's walking at night in the, head, the headlamp, you know, he's, you know, <laughs> walking through the desert, whoop, you know, shiny, right? And this freaked the Israelites out, you know, they're like, no, 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 you know, cover that, right? And so they made him wear a veil over it, it freaked them out. And so Moses is continually get to see and enjoy and be transformed by the glory of God, and the Israelites are blinded. They don't see his glory, and they're not benefiting from it. And guys, we all start off like that spiritually, don't we? We all start off blind to the beauty and the value and the glory of God. If you're a believer here today, you remember when you were blinded to the beauty and the value of the glory of God. You know, you're like that old 70s song, Jesus is just all right with me. Jesus is just all right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jesus is just all right with me, right? Like, you had that level of like, oh yeah, I, I appreciate him. It's like, no, 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 no. We're talking treasure him. We're talking about seeing the beauty and the value and the glory of God. And we were all once blinded, it says, by the enemy, so that we couldn't see the glory of God all around us. Even though, as Calvin says in the Institutes, that God has placed us in this glorious theater, not here, but this world, this glorious theater where we can constantly see his glories on display. Right? But we're born blind. We're born blind, spiritually blind to God, in a theater full of the bright glories of Jesus and yet we don't see it until somebody what? Until somebody shares the gospel with us. And you guys can remember how that happened. You heard the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit removes the veil, removes the blinders, gives you spiritual sight to the glory of Christ. You see that in Second Corinthians 4, 6. For God, listen to this. Isn't this so cool the way he uses this passage from Genesis? For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Like one day you heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit said enough of this blindness and gave you sight and you saw him and you were shocked. You were shocked because it's not like you'd never heard of Jesus. It's not like you'd never heard maybe the gospel. It's maybe not like you've never heard the Bible before. But all of a sudden you saw Jesus' glory for the first time and you found him irresistible, right? He is irresistible when we truly see him, right? And then you turn from your sin and you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and King. Just like in Matthew 13, 14, when Jesus gives this example, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. It's kind of a shady story. So the guy's out in a field. He doesn't own the field. He finds some treasure. He's like, I'm not going to tell the owner. We'll just cover that up, right? But then he doesn't run off with it either. So he's like, kind of shady. He's going to try and get it right, kind of. And so he's selling everything he has to buy the field. And people are looking at him like, poor guy, look at him selling everything he has. Look at that. Isn't that sad? Oh, that man's not going to have anything. And he's what? Cracking up, right? He's overjoy. He's selling everything. And that's what we're like when we really see Jesus for the first time. We go like, I don't need that sin. I don't need that sin. I don't even need my freedom. I want to follow this man. He's so much better than anything. He's a treasure hidden in a field. It's like the fourth century African Bishop Augustine said this. He said, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. Isn't that amazing? He says to the Lord, You drove me from them, you who are the true and sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place, O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation isn't that awesome? We had these fruitless joys that we had so long feared to lose. Maybe you'd heard the gospel before and you thought, well, that sounds good, but I've got something that's better. I've got my sin. I've got these things. I don't know how I could live without these things. And Augustine says, like, all of a sudden, You drove them from me, and I didn't fear to lose them because you're the greater joy. The Holy Spirit saves us by giving us a sight of the glory of God, specifically the glory of God in Jesus, in the gospel. Jesus is the glory of God. You guys know in John 1, 14, it says this about Jesus, that we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. In fact, later on in John, in the gospel of John, John says this really amazing thing, and it'd be really easy to miss. It's in chapter 12, verse 41. After there's a quotation of Isaiah 6, that passage I read where Isaiah is like, woe is me, I'm an unclean man, he gets his lips burned and all that. After there's a quotation of that passage, uh, the the gospel writer John says this, Isaiah said these things, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and all that, right? Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. What's John saying? The God that you see in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, um, and that he's, his, the whole earth is full of his glory, that's Jesus. He actually saw Jesus' glory in the Old Testament there. The glory of God that Isaiah saw was Jesus' glory. When he said, woe is me, I'm, in, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then he had that, the angel brought that coal and burned his lips and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sins atoned for. That was Isaiah's encounter with, with Jesus' glory. And, and so according to John, the God of Isaiah 6 actually walked around amongst sinners in the person of Jesus, that he actually came from that throne, became a man, and this God who couldn't be approached without having your lips burned, which is crazy, walked around amongst sinners, and then ultimately he came to, to pay the debt of our sin, right? Because we needed a lot more than just our lips burned clean, Right? You only have sin in your lips? No. We have sin in every single part of us. We've been contaminated in every aspect of our being by sin, right? And all our sins were placed on Jesus. And all of our sins are, as it were, burned up on Jesus. That God's holy wrath was poured out on our sins, on Jesus, so that they're completely removed. In Jesus, God made a way to purify us and burn our sins away without burning us up. Amen? Praise God for that, that your sins actually got destroyed on the cross without you being destroyed. Jesus took it on, and now he's welcoming us as he's always wanted to, guys. He's welcoming us into his holy and happy presence. God is now our treasure, and God, guys, is the guarantee that our happiness will be never-ending because God's blessed, remember? God's the happiest of all beings. We're welcome in his presence. Guess what? You're going to be enjoying his joy forever. He's blessed. He's eternal, right? He's not going to die on you. He's not going to disappear on you. You'll always have him. He's eternal. He's unchanging. So he's not going to get less perfect, right? He's perfect. He's the sum of all desirable things, right? There's not one thing missing from him, and that's never going to change. And in Jesus, he is a hundred percent for you. Isn't that amazing? He's 100% for you. This God is blessed, eternal, and changing. And so we're saved by seeing the glory of God. But you might ask this question, like, yeah, but how do we change? You know, how do we we become more Christ-like? Because God said multiple times to his people in the Old Testament and New, be holy for I'm holy, right? Be holy for I'm holy. How do we actually practically, we've been made holy in God's sight, how do we practically get holy? How do we get holy in a way that your spouse will notice? Okay? How do we get holy in a way your kids notice? How do we get holy in a way your dog can tell? Okay? Like, we're talking about practical holiness. We're talking about actually transformed and made more like Christ. And, and the way that that happens, guys, the way that that happens is by beholding the glory of God. Take a look at it again in, um, in verse 17 of uh, 2 Corinthians 3. L- look at how he transforms us. So first... He saves us by showing us the glory of Jesus. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to that. But take a look at how we change from here on out. Look at verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And then listen to this description of you guys as believers whose veil has been removed. You see the glory of Jesus. He says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed—it's present tense—into the same image— from one degree of glory to another. I like the one degree of glory to another. It's incremental, right? It's not like, bam, you know, it's one degree of glory to another. And he says, this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we're transformed, guys, as believers by beholding the glory of the Lord. Just as Moses was transformed physically by beholding God's glory, we're transformed in this life spiritually by beholding the glory of the Lord. And specifically, whose glory? Jesus' if you take a look at um, chapter 4 verse 4 it's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ and then 4 6 the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so as we behold Christ as we know him in the message of the gospel and we bask in his beauty and we enjoy who he is the Holy Spirit comes in and he frees us from sin's dominion and he makes us more and more like Jesus Is Isn't that cool it's the same process, right? And he, he saved us by showing us Jesus' glory. Now he transforms us by seeing Jesus' glory. It's by seeing and savoring Jesus in the gospel that we become more like him. And so something I really am passionate about, I think it's very important, this, we're gospel-centered, right? We have a banner about this. That the gospel, guys, is not just for unbelievers. You know, I've been involved in a lot of churches, and there are times when, you know, you hear the whole message, and in the very end there's a gospel presentation, and that's when you know to put your stuff away because you are already got that right? You kind of pack it all up. Okay, this is for those guys. Man, I hope somebody gets saved. You know, right? There's that kind of a thing. Guys, we intentionally, guys, embed the gospel in, it in such a way that it's not when you're packing your stuff up. That would be the worst time for you to pack your stuff up. Pack your stuff up when I'm telling some story about a puppy, which I'm never going to do, but um, that would be the time to pack stuff up. But guys, the gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel's for us, for believers. We never move beyond the gospel. The gospel is not just the ABCs, the kind of the way you get in, and then you move on to some deeper, solid principle that will really change you. I believe passionately, this is a core conviction, that the gospel transforms us. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's continually coming back and seeing the glory of Jesus manifest in the gospel that will transform us. The gospel is the power of God to both save and sanctify it. So look at it again, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? Freedom. That's getting rid of sin, right? And we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being what? Transformed into the same image, image of Jesus, from one degree of glory to another. So we see both freedom and transformation, And you guys have experienced this. You guys have experienced the Holy Spirit freeing you from the allure of sin by showing you that Jesus is better. So you got your little precious, you know, your little sin. People confronted you about it and you were like, ah! You know, like, right? People in the church like, hey, I kind of noticed that you're, and you were, ah! It's my precious. It's mine. Right? Some of you guys have that right now and I'm kind of careful with you because I know you'll do that. Your eyes will, like, pop out like Gollum, you know, your little sharp teeth, because you're guarding that thing. Oh, you're so afraid to lose that sin, aren't you? So who would you be if you didn't have it, right? But then you see the glory of Jesus, and what do you do? You go, like, I don't need this anymore, right? See, the beauty of Jesus, you're like, I need two open hands to grab hold of Jesus, right? I want to completely have him. We're freed by seeking happiness from sin by getting joy in Jesus, Because it's always when you're miserable that you want sin right it's always out of a lack of joy that you're going after the things you're going after you're sniffing around and eating those crumbs off the cafeteria floor because you're hungry right and there's all kinds of hair down there and like dust and all kinds of stuff and rat droppings you don't care you're hungry you're hungry right but when you see the glory of jesus you have a joy and you're so full guys that you're like i don't need it i'm totally happy in jesus right now Guys, that is our main strategy against fighting sin. Is that your main strategy? Nehemiah 8 said this, Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for today. For today is holy to the Lord. And then listen to this. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is our strength. Joy of the Lord is your strength. It is your Christian duty, guys, to be as happy as you possibly can be in Jesus. In Philippians 4.4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice, right? Why? Well, we rejoice in the Lord because it's a way of us showing that we see Him as glorious and beautiful and worthy, and it's a guarantee against sin because the more we're filled with joy, it's our strength. That's what you need to make your habit. George Mueller said this. He lived in the 1800s. He had all these orphan houses. He had these crazy stories of prayer where it's like they're out of milk, and he's like, You want me to go get some? No, let's pray. And he like he prays for milk, and then like knock, knock, knock on the door. And there's a guy that was delivering milk, and his, his cart broke. And he's like, "Hey, you better take all this milk, because we can't, you know, deliver it on time. It'll go bad." It happened to him all the time. This guy, it's just unbelievable. He said, "This, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord." Do you believe that? that the first great and primary business of every day is to have your soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned with was not how much I might serve the Lord or glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state, how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing that I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and meditation on it. And so he's getting the word at what, out of duty? No. He's like, I got to get my soul as happy in the Lord as possible because, you know, there's going to be temptations of Satan all over the place, and I need to make sure that I'm as happy and as filled in the Lord as possible. Uh, Puritan Matthew Henry said this. He said, God will put our mouths out of taste for the pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. Right? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a strategy? Right? Guys, that is my philosophy of ministry, and I didn't develop it just yesterday. Okay, that, is my, that has been my conviction for 15 years, is that the way that we're transformed is by seeing and enjoying the glory of Christ. It's by joy, it's by joy in him that we resist sin. And so in every message, no matter what the text, no matter what the topic, I will always try to show you the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ and the glory of God in the face of Jesus, as this text says, because I don't believe any other power will truly dislodge sin from your heart. And um, it's the only real power to change you from the inside out. So that's just the way it is. So you might wonder, like, why does he always talk about Jesus in every message? Like in Exodus, go to Jesus. It's not just like an aesthetic preference that I'm like, oh, this is really fun to try and tie it to Jesus. It's that I believe that that's what will change you. Only awe and joy and the glory of Christ and the gospel will reorder the desires and appetites of your heart. Because it isn't a win, guys, just to change your behavior. Right? We have the Pharisees as an example of that. They had to behavior. It's not a win just to change your behavior. God wants your desires. He wants your loves. He wants your affections, not just your will and your actions. Now, there will be times when you don't feel joy in Jesus, and you say, well, what should I do? Should I still obey him? Yes. <laughs> we should always obey him, okay? Like, you know, hey, you know, I kind of feel like murdering my neighbor because he's got music up so loud, but I don't feel a lot of joy in Jesus. I don't really feel like I have the power to do it the right way, so maybe I'll just kill him. No, don't kill him. I'm glad your will is is in place there. I'm glad you're just doing right actions without having the right heart. But we should also be pleading that God would change the heart, right? So you do the action, but you say, Lord, I don't want to just do this out of, you know, fear of you. I don't want to just do this out of duty. I want to do this because I delight in you so much that I'm willing to put up with whatever my neighbor has planned for this evening. Right? Okay. We're also transformed into his image look at uh, verse uh, chapter 3 verse 18 it says we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord he says we're being transformed it turns out that you become like whatever you behold you start to image whatever you enjoy and we know this and this might be a good test for you like what do you do with your eyes it turns out you become like what you behold. You become like what you enjoy. You become like what you constantly put in front of you. And God's designed you that way because we're supposed to be constantly putting before, before us the glory of God. We're supposed to be beholding him. And that's, guys, what the means of grace are about, by the way. When we think of things like being in the Word, and prayer, and fasting, and fellowship, and worship, and service, and solitude, and taking the Lord's Supper, and all these things, what are we trying to do with these? We're not trying to earn God's favor, right? That'd be a really weird way to earn His favor, wouldn't it? You know, I've sinned like crazy against the Lord, but you know what? I'm sure if I read His book, you know, I want everybody to read His book. I'm sure if I read His book, then He'll be happy with me. That's a really weird way to pay Him off. Okay, that's not what it's about. It isn't about that. What it's about is it's about beholding the glory of God in Christ. Right? I open this book. I pray. I fast. I take the Lord's supper. I gather in fellowship. I even go away in solitude, journal things like that, because I want to behold the glory of Jesus in the face, in gl- glory of God in the face of Jesus. Right? It, it's the way we're transformed. And look what he says. He says it's from one degree of glory to another. You think, well, this isn't working, and uh, it is actually, it is working. It's from one degree of glory to another. And you're like, well, I thought it would be like instantaneous. It's not. Why? I don't know. But I do know this. I know that as we behold him, we become more like him. It's incremental, but it's real. And this is one place where it would be a really good idea, spouses, parents to your kids, maybe kids to your parents, encourage one another that you see difference. Most of us don't see any difference in ourselves. We actually kind of think we're getting worse, right? But when you see a difference, when you say, you know what, you've actually come from one degree of glory to another, we should tell each other. People need to hear that kind of thing. And looking upon Christ in the gospel is actually a way of putting him back in the center of our affections. When you're in the word, when you're praying, when you're fasting, what you're really wanting is to go, like, imagine your life as, I got a picture here, as a little solar system, okay? And what we're doing when we pray, when we worship and stuff like that, is we're trying to to put the glory of God back in the center, it gets become on the sides, and some other thing, maybe you know, maybe our parenting, or our marriage, or our work, or approval of others, or something else has gotten in the center. Right? Psalm 16:8 uh, says this: "I have set the Lord always before me, and because He's at my right hand, I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole body rejoices, and my flesh dwells securely." Do you see what he's saying there? The reason he's stable, the reason he's secure. The reason his joy is protected is because he set the Lord always before him. He's put the glory of God in the center of his affections, and we do that through all those means, right? Imagine your life is this little solar system. Only the glory of God, guys, has the weight, has the gravity, that is fit to be in the center of the solar system of your affections. Only he should be there. Imagine a solar system. Imagine you go like, you know what? The sun's been there long enough. Let's put Jupiter there. What happens to the solar system? destroyed right that's what happens when we put anything else in the center of our affections you guys know that the, the hebrew word for glory kavod it means weight it means he's weighty. It means he has gravity. It means he has power, right? And like the gravity of the sun keeps all the planets in kind of happy alignment, right? God's glory, his weight, stabilizes and orders every, all our different loves. Because we love a lot of things, right? And there, it's legitimate to love many things. But God's glory has to be the all-satisfying center. If you put anything else in there, stability's lost. It's a disaster, right? Put your work in the center. How many of you guys have done that? Anybody put their work there? And glory of God will put you over here, maybe we'll put you on Sunday, and we'll put work right there. What happens? Destroys your relationships, right? It's a burden that your soul can't bear, right? It wasn't meant to be there. It doesn't have the weight to do that. And some of us, you know, you go to school or you, you know, you have this long process to get to this dream job, and you just think, this thing's going to make me everything Right? What are we expecting? We're expecting it to be the center, and it can't be. And then you get there, and you're disillusioned, and it's a good thing you're disillusioned because you're realizing that only God can be in the center. What about marriage? Are you looking to your spouse to give you your joy and security and meaning? No, seriously, are you? This happens all the time. Are you looking to your spouse to give you your joy and your meaning and security? Right? Does your spouse, let me put it this way, does, do you think your spouse feels the pressure to make you happy? and make you feel significant, and make you feel secure, and make you feel like you have worth? It's a tricky thing, right? There's a loving spouse gonna do some of those things, right? Is that who you look to, right? Do you look to your spouse to make you happy, and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was a problem. It is a problem. To make you happy, to make you feel significant, to make you feel secure, make you have worth. Guys, it is not their job. They cannot bear it. They cannot be the center. They cannot be your savior. And if you look to your spouse to make you happy and to fill some sort of emptiness in you, you will be doomed. Your marriage will be doomed. And they might like it in the beginning, having somebody see them as your savior. They will hate it in the end because no one can bear the weight of that, right? My wife, she is by far the most content person I know. It's the craziest thing in the world. I mean, I'm just kind of realizing this. We've been married, like, 22 years. I've known her for almost 30 years. She's the most content person I know. Like, and, you know, sometimes I've been insecure about that because, like, I, she does not actually need me to prop up her happiness or her purpose or security or worth. Right? And y'all like to be needed, don't you? You know? Like, you know? They don't really want to do that job, but you kind of like to feel like maybe you're doing that job. She doesn't need that from me. Right? She doesn't need that for me. Why? Because she gets that from Christ. She does what Psalm 16.8 says. She puts the Lord always before her, right? And it is awesome, guys, not to have to be your spouse's savior. You can be their friend, be their husband or wife, but you don't have to bear the weight of that person's worth and existence and identity and all that stuff, right? It's a huge value. Parenting. You put your kids in the center of that, you're going to wreck your marriage, and you're going to make them miserable, you're going to make your kids miserable. You put them in the center of that. A lot of people, when they get to the age where their kids are moving out of the house, um, you know, then they divorce because there's no more reason to be together because guess what? The gravity, the thing that was holding them together, was the parenting, right? Guys, if you're looking for your kids to validate your existence, they can't bear that weight. Our valley's terrible at this. Terrible. These kids are running around like, I mean, resume building insanity. Right, these kids are so stressed out. I mean, by the time they're 19 or 20, they're going to be burned out, taking ulcer meds, you know, stuff like that. They're going to have to go straight into retirement. They're being run around with all these sports and all these different things, and acting and all this community service to build a resume for college, right? You know, and what is that about? That's about us trying to find our the validation of our existence in these kids, and it'll it'll make them miserable. How about your appearance? Put that there, guys. That is a losing game. Okay, like by definition, to put your appearance, how you look, in the center of this. It's basically beholding your own glory, and it is a fading glory. I think you all look great, but I'm just telling you, it's a losing game. What if you instead pursued the radiance of the glory of God, something that never fades? Right? We were reminiscing the other day, uh, Casey and I, about something that Nancy Albao said. I was. Um, doing a a class on counseling and stuff. And she goes, you know, women are always trying to, like, feel young and look young and all that stuff. And she said, you know when I feel the youngest is when I learn something new about the Lord. I said, every time I learn something new about the Lord, she said, I feel young. I feel like it's a spark of just, and she's talking about joy, right? What about approval of others? Put the approval of others in there? Which ones? Have you guys noticed they all want something different from you? Right? If I had to meet all of your demands, it's actually impossible It's impossible, y'all want something different. Guys, we can only truly love people if the glory of God has set us free to be happily unconcerned with people's opinions. I can only love you if I really don't care that much about your opinion, right? (laughs) Paradoxically, right? Because if I am constantly doing things so that you will give me approval, guess what? I'm in it to get something from you, okay? I'm not loving you, I'm using you for approval right? Guys, we need the glory of God to so shake us that we are happily unconcerned with opinions. What about your bank balance? How many of you guys check your bank balance every day? I do. How many of you guys check it more than once a day? I do too. How many of you guys check it three times a day? Where's it going? Is somebody going to deposit money from like a Swiss account? Like there's nothing new coming in here. I'm the one that makes the money, right? How much is enough? Guys, you know you could lose it in a second. All of it. All of it. You say, well, I've stored, you know, for retirement, all this stuff. You, know, you could get disabled in some way, and it could be gone in a year. It could be gone instantly. Proverbs 23.4, isn't that freeing? Proverbs 23.4 20, says, do not toil to acquire wealth. That includes retirement. That includes, you know, having this big cushion. Be discerning enough to stop. When your eyes light on it, the money, it's gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings and flies away to heaven. You know, there's an emoji on your phone for this. It's a little stack of money with wings. Very <laughs> biblical. It's Proverbs 23:4. Guys, when we are shaken, we have to ask, what else have we put in the center of the solar system of our affections? I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand. I won't be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh swells what securely. And guys, I'm not saying that when the glory of God's in the center that we don't suffer. We do suffer. But as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, we're sorrowful yet what? Always rejoicing. That the joy in the Lord coming from fixating on the glory of God in Jesus, in the gospel, is something that that can hold us together, right? The center holds. You know, you get like just thrashed and you're sad and that's normal and that's human and that's good, okay? Weep with those who weep. Weeping is, is, is totally appropriate, but you know what happens also? The center holds. The center holds. Why? Why does the center hold? The center holds because our happiness is securely attached to God himself, and he's the guarantee of our everlasting happiness because he's blessed, right? In his presence is fullness of joy. He's eternal. He's never going to leave you, right? He's unchanging. He's never going to be less perfect, and in Jesus, he is 100% for you. So that's why we can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Or as Paul says, you know, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope, right? They're together, but there's this underlying joy that holds us together. And it's it exciting. And what's exciting to me, guys, is that the Holy Spirit right now is awakening people to the glory of God all around us. It's really cool. Here in this room, it's happened multiple times this year. People here, I won't point you out. That's for you to declare. And, and in the world, guys, he is constantly awakening people to the glory of Jesus. He's taking the blinders off. He's giving them vision, right? And and they're seeing that, you know, this world is missing something huge. Because when you're young, you think, nah, no, it's not missing anything. I'm gonna do this, this, and this, and I'm gonna get everything lined up and I'm gonna be happy. And then you get to that mountain and you're like, where did the happiness go? You know, and you look, and there's another mountain, and you try and go up that one, right? And the thing is, eventually, we all get to this point, if the Lord opens our eyes to it, that it's pretty meaningless and empty if we focus on only things that can be seen. If life's about, you take a few trips, you have some good meals, you upload the right pictures and die. I mean, that's pretty much what our culture has for us. We're going to go on some great trips. We're going to eat some great meals. We're going to upload some pictures of it and then we're going to die, and then our Facebook account lives on so that people can see the trips we went on and the meals we ate. Or <laughs> or, what we could have to look forward to is the God who is all-satisfying treasure, and that we have him, resurrected body, new world, glorifying Him in all sorts of ways in the world to come. Guys, every day the Spirit is making more people self-aware to know that something in the world doesn't satisfy. I was talking to a guy about this just a couple weeks ago. He was out in the, I guess, the foyer out there, and he was, we were talking, and he goes, know, yeah, just so you know, I'm not a believer. And I'm like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. We started talking and stuff, and he goes, you know, like, what I'm finding is I just feel like, I feel like there's a hole inside me that nothing can fill. And I'm like, is this a test? I'm wondering if this is like a believer messing with me, you know? Like, just see it like, let me just give this to you. It was odd, right? He sounded just like Blaise Pascal. He said this, what else does this craving, this, this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is empty print. This he tries to fill in vain with everything around him, but nothing can help since this infinite abyss can only be filled With an infinite, immutable object. In other words, God Himself. That's what He's basically saying. You know, I was telling him, like, you know, like, I I know who can fill that. He's like, really? It's Jesus. He's like, you think so? I said, yes, you know, we got to dug into it, we talked more, I prayed for him, it was such an awesome conversation, but people try to fill that hole, and he talked about this, people try to fill that hole with vacations and purchases, love a big purchase, purchases, accomplishments, film, music, sex, drugs, romance, diets, exercise, money management, but guess what, guys, the longing remains, can't feed it enough, right? C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is, is that I was made for another world. And you were, and if you have that longing this morning, I wanna tell you a few things that I think are good news. That longing you have that can't be filled, that you're miserable in this world, is, is real, okay? That hole's real. You're not weird, you're not, you know, mentally sick. That fact that you have a longing that can't be filled in this world is totally real. And it was placed there by God. And I think that's good news. You know, some people fill that longing, they fill that hole, and they end up just committing suicide, and that's over, right? I want to tell you good news. You don't have to do that because that longing is real, and it was placed there by God, and he will fill it with his all-satisfying glory if you turn from your sin and trust in him today. And I'm not just saying that as like a tagline. Turn from your sin and trust in him. We just talked about like, Those things you're holding on to, those things you're like, I'd follow Jesus, but, you know, I really want this, and I know he's going to want to take this from me, or, or this. Guys, think about that for a moment. I'm talking about everlasting happiness in the presence of God. I'm talking about a completely clean conscience. I'm talking about being seen as 100% righteous by the God who made you. I'm talking about you actually getting to behold the face of God and not be terrified, but enjoy him and bask in his presence and then in this world to come to be able to do all kinds of things for his glory and out of his love. What was the thing you wanted again? Like seriously, what was the thing you wanted more than that? Like you you really need to plop that on the scale this morning. You know, and you say, well, I don't think I can be free from this. You can. We talked about that this morning. Talk to us, you can be free from that. That's not the, you think, oh, I'm always enslaved to that. Nope, not the case. Not the case. Take the glory of God, the weightiness of God and who he is and what he has for you, and it goes, and then you are going to put something on here that's better. Don't leave this room. Don't get in your car and drive away without receiving this love. The Lord's Supper, guys, is, a, is an opportunity to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. So as we take the bread and the cup, we are remembering the, 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 the God who came in the flesh to die for our sins. We're remembering Jesus, the omniscient one, who came knowing just what he was about to do. We, we're going to remember Jesus, the free one, who offered himself willingly to be arrested. We're going to think about Jesus, the omnipotent one, who let sinners, crucify him, binding him with nails. We're going to think about Jesus, the perfect one who is despised and forsaken. Jesus is the beautiful one who is spit upon and hated. Jesus, the blessed one who took your curse. And as we behold him, may God give us the grace to grow in him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the beauty of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that no one here would leave um, chasing after very deficient reasons for existence, very deficient joys, but would seek you. Lord Jesus, we pray, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts, awaken our hope that we may know you as you have been revealed in scripture and in the breaking of this bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. We pray Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.